Good evening. Welcome to Deadly Days, Tales of Dark Fantasy. My name is Joe Vandal, and this is going to be, I think it's our thir 34th episode, if I remember right. Anyway, it's going to be from uh, the magazine Cocaine, which I translated for Sidemill Press. It came out originally in Germany in 1925. And it only went for three issues. Now, the last two times that I've done stories from the story from this was a kind of a like an extra or a, a diary portion called Extraordinary Women. And this is going to be part three. It's going to be fairly short, so I'm going to add a little bit to it. Uh, cocaine had some legal issues. They had some legal problems. And this diary piece, whatever you want to call it, is one of them. One of the reasons why they were pretty much forced out of business, as you'll see, remember 1925, that's almost 100 years ago. But before we get there, I just want to say that if you enjoy the short stories, if you enjoy these stories, um, and you would like to read them in print, I have I have these in books. Uh, my these episodes are generally speaking from four sources right now: uh, short stories by Hans Heinz Ewers, Carl uh, Hans Strobel, and from the first world's first illustrated fantasy magazine, Garden, and this magazine, Cocaine. The thing is, they're published in print, uh, a lot of them hardcover or softcover, uh, and some of the ebooks. And I also have, besides short stories, there's a lot of novels out there and more coming. You just go to www.lulu.com slash spotlight slash anarchist banjo or just go to lulu.com l-u-l-u.com you can go into the search bar for their store you can look up under my name Joe Bandle or some of these you can look up under the author of the story if you really wanted to haunt like Hans Heinz yours uh, Carl Strobel there's other stories uh, Paul Basson there's another one that I've been doing so anyway uh, if you like those kind of stories those are available again this is going to be part three of extraordinary women 
and then I'm going to read a little bit of the rest because it's pretty short. Vienna, 20 May 1923, Hotel. Little Anita's instinctual life is extremely well developed considering her age. She suffers from it as from a heavy burden that she cannot shake off. Instinctively, whenever the opportunity arises, she looks for some activity that will release the tension of her ardent senses. Yet, in the decisive moment, she thwarts her own goal because of her inexperience and awkwardness. This morning, but no, I want to write my entries in the correct order. Yesterday evening, after Anita was close to biting me in her passionate exuberance, I tried to calm her down and distract her. I caressed her like a little child, said stupid little endearments to her, and told her all sorts of things from my adventures on the Riviera. I deliberately kept silent about any erotic episodes, and in this manner I actually managed to get Anita to dress and have supper. It might have been around 12 o'clock that night when we went into our bedrooms. Anita asked me if she could sleep in bed next to me and pretended to be afraid to sleep in a separate room. I agreed without further ado. We lay down and after a few minutes I was asleep. Suddenly Anita's soft voice woke me. Madam, Vera, are you asleep? I pretended not to hear. So she repeated her question even more quietly if possible, as if she were afraid of waking me up. Madam, Vera, are you asleep? I did not respond. She remained quiet for a little while, then she very carefully straightened, lifted my blanket, and pushed herself very softly against me. Again, she was quiet for a short while, carefully without making any noise, she moved her hand, then pressed even closer to me, and from the strength of her movements, I could infer the passion that shook her. It was as if an electric current suddenly passed through her body. She collapsed and remained as if lifeless beside me. After a while, she went to her own bed and fell asleep. This nocturnal visit made its own impression on me, but I helped myself in my own way since I was interested keeping my distance from Anita. When I woke up the next morning, I heard Anita's voice from the adjoining room. Have you already had your bath today, Miss Dolly? Certainly, madame. I bathe daily at five o'clock before going to work. Do you bathe alone? Would you like to join me, Dolly? Bathe with me? Oh, madam, if you would like me to, with pleasure. But what do you mean by that? Are you ashamed of something, Dolly? Ashamed of me? Well, I am a young girl, too. Look, your right stocking is not straight. Wait a minute. I will straighten it. I climbed out of bed carefully pushed back the door curtain and saw Dolly, the new maid, standing in the middle of the room.
a beautiful young girl with a blonde page boy haircut. Her not too slender figure revealed wonderfully proportioned limbs, the curve of, curves of which could be clearly seen through the tightening, tight-fitting dress. One hand she kept in the pocket of her dazzling white apron, the other in front of her mouth, concealing her laugh from Anita. While Anita, who appeared to be hastily dressed in pajamas, which were still open in front, was crouched down on the carpet, trying to straighten Dolly's stocking. What wonderful legs you have, said Anita, and ran her hand over the girl's thigh. Dolly turned her head to the side, laughed, and tried to smooth out her dress, which Anita had strongly rumpled up. Dolly, stay there. Come here. I want to tell you something, stammered Anita, and ran her hands over the girl's body. But, madam, what shall I do? No, please, no. Dolly, sit down here. I beg you. I have money as much as you want. Here, take this ring. Come. Dolly did not appear to understand the situation, but obviously felt that this was a serious business. Visibly embarrassed and perplexed, she sat across from Anita on the carpet and became even more confused when Anita wrapped her arms around her and fell upon her in wild abandon, kissing her mouth and legs with hot passion. Dolly began to suspect what was really going on with her, she became pale, did not move, and stared distractedly in front of her. A faint tremor went over her body. Anita, on the other hand, with panting breath and glowing eyes, was the living image of the tremendous force of the primal instincts in their nature, natural search for release. With feverish hands, Anita tried to seize the girl. Her nervously trembling fingers slid madly along Dolly's body, from her breasts to her hips, then to her legs, and back again. Kiss me, Dolly, right here, right here. She tore off her pajamas and pressed Dolly's head against her blanket. I, I madam, I, I, I can't, replied the girl, who appeared just about to cry. Just as Anita's countless love caresses were about to break through Dolly's resistance, she suddenly stood up and hurried to the door to bolt it shut. But at the same moment, Dolly jumped up hastily, straightened out her clothing, and slipped out the door. Note at the bottom... To better understand these diary pages, it is advisable to read the previous entries in issues 1 and 2 of our review, the editors. Okay, now we get into the what happened here. Issue 3 of cocaine was seized by the authorities and prosecuted for violation of public morality. The next issue of cocaine, issue 4, was actually a reprint of issue three with an added editorial on the case by Cocaine's editor, Fritz Bauer, 
in an essay on pornography by one of the accused, Erwin Stranick. It was probably titled Issue 4, in an attempt to evade the censor, that extra material is reproduced in the following pages. This is the prosecutor initiated seizure of volumes two and three of the modern review cocaine and brought charges against the author in question, as well as Dr. Stefan Igler, Dr. Victor Koch, and me. We were charged with violation of public morality. In addition, the public prosecutor accused me of having tried to justify and praise immoral acts and actions prohibited by law by publishing a story about lesbian love. I, as the editorial manager of this paper, do not intend to enter into a controversy at this point over the extent to which this confiscation is legally justified, while appreciating the literary, artistic, and cultural value of this magazine. I expect that I will have the opportunity before the forum of a jury to prove that human sensuality does not cease when it is concealed and that, alongside science, the artist is called to speak and write about instinctual drives, that human laws and truths cannot be simply blown away, that a culture works out its own methods, and that a literary epoch breaks through a thousand bands despite the prosecutor's guardianship, that the confiscated essays, as the public prosecutor calls them, are, are, are artistic productions, is beyond all doubt. Many, many authorities have unequivocally confirmed this. If some passages are not expressed in learned jargon, but in a naturalistic form, then this only speaks to the highly qualified ability of the author, but not to any intent for immorality. This tendency is absence, absent from the entire review cocaine as well. It does not speak about eroticism for the sake of it, but of the human instinctual life, which, as far as I know, existed before the magazine Cocaine. It takes as its starting point the consideration which Schopenhauer mentioned, that life itself is never beautiful, but that images of it are, when transformed into art and poetry. So, in my opinion, there is little practical value in clothing oneself in dictatorial force in trying to inhibit love. This would be just a desperate ploy that would only strike at the shadow of the body. When I took on the editing of the magazine Cocaine, I had the goal of cultivating modern literature. The thought of influencing the primal instincts in man through slippery means never once occurred to me. Through the intervening of the public prosecutor, who incidentally numbed me more than instructed me, I have been placed in the position of the defendant about whom the English Herald reported on 16 July 1836. 
after his lawyer had presented his case in court, he burst into tears and exclaimed, I didn't think I had committed half as much as that. Even I did not believe that I had done half as much against morality as what I am now being accused of. After what has been said, it is still unnecessary to assure the dear readers that the magazine Cocaine will retain its artistic and literary level, its direction, and particular charm without prejudice to all previous and all further confiscations. Fritz Bauer Okay, then here's a final short essay that kind of applies to that. What is Art and What is Pornography by Dr. Erwin Stranick? The New Viennese Review, Cocaine which has set itself the goal of cultivating the most modern fiction genre on an artistic basis, was confiscated shortly after the appearance of the third number. None other than Hans Heinz Ewers, Karl Hans Strobel, Kurt Munzer, Otto Soika, George Hirschfeld, Paul Leppin, and Fritz Bauer have provided manuscripts for the magazine. The seizure took place because of contributions from me, from Max Stabich, and a continuation from the diary of a woman with a rich erotic life and also a drawing by Stefan Egler, which the well-known artist contributed to my novella in the cellar hole. It goes without saying that I can in no way be indifferent to the confiscation of one of my works no matter how small it may be. I do not strive in any way for sensation or fame. References to the struggles that Wiedekind had to fight with the censors seem to me to be just as superfluous as the example of Gerhard Hauptmann or Arthur Schnitzler, whose circle dance of legal problems should still be vividly remembered by the entire audience solely out of theoretical interests of self-preservation and without any secret or public attack toward any person or institution. I would simply like to raise the question that should never lose its relevance. Where does art end and where does pornography begin? The word is taken from the Greek word pornographia, as well as depictions of prostitutes and is therefore used in the legal sense as a technical term for works depicting questionable scenes of depravity, descriptions of dissolute people, and similar activities. Depraved, that means that the presentation was deliberately created to influence unspoiled minds or to reinforce already depraved people in their vices. One therefore tends to judge images as obscene, which depict scenes of love in an intrusive way, insofar as this depiction does not rise into the sphere of artistic endeavor. Egon Schiele's lovers would not be rejected as pornography today, neither would any of Klimt's paintings nor Rodin's kiss. Nobody will take offense at nude drawings as long as they are created by artists for artistic reasons. 
For example, take offense or broadly accuse Leda with the swan as being pornographic. In the field of literature, it is no different. Almost all creative work is grouped around love, and the erotic itself is known to apply in scientific circles, and not only in those of modern psychoanalytic research. As the main, if not the only root of all artistic production. Goethe's trilogy of passion proves to be pulsed with the Olympian eros as much as his equally primal Faust scenes. And look how all the creations of music are possessed by the demon eros. Eros, as the primal instinct of all human instinctive action, will and must play a major role in all poetry. The masculinity of intellect and the femininity of feeling, mind, and passion will fight the battle of opposites, their polar extremes, as opposites, their polar extremes, as long as people live. It is from this struggle that the organic world and the propagation of the races grows. Eros is therefore an artistic motif. To represent Eros in all positions, in all shades, remains one of the artist's main tasks. He cannot just dwell on kissing the hand, the union of two lovers, or the two who hate each other, as in the case of my confiscated work. Always forms, and will always form the culmination of every representation of a person's soul, love, life. My novella in the cellar hole, eight pages long, confiscated by the public prosecutor, describes in almost 12 lines an act of love. Of these 12 half lines, there are four or five in between with other thematic treatment. So that leaves eight lines out of 350. Egler's picture of an ugly man embracing a naked woman, dancer, also confiscated. So what is art? What about pornography? I undertook the reading of the earlier issues to determine the difference between what was allowed and what was not allowed and failed. In terms of artistic content, the artistic level of all previously published issues of this review remains the same. And I know of myself, as well as my colleagues, that we are only guided by purely artistic intentions in our involvement with this publication. I do not raise either a reproach or an indictment. I only ask if we artists, for whom it is already made as difficult as possible to indulge in our work, are even more hindered from exercising our profession by seizure and confiscation, what should we do? I ask. What is one allowed to write? What is the line between art and porno pornography? And there you go. That's the end of that little story about what, one of the reasons why the, the magazine Cocaine was forced to quit publication. Good night.